If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with Rune Rasmussen from the Nordic Animism YouTube channel. This was a really fascinating conversation, and we covered a lot of ground, from the almost lost ancient animist traditions of Scandinavia, to the vibrant, ever-evolving animist practices of the African diaspora in Brazil. We talk about the distinctions between animism and paganism, what makes animist traditions so resilient, and how the living animist practices of the global south could lead us in the global north toward a post-colonial, post-monotheistic future in which religious diversity and eclecticism are not only tolerated but celebrated, and reverence for other-than-human life is once again central to our spiritual practice and lives. This was a really fun one, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. If you'd like to support this podcast and gain access to early release of episodes and the full podcast archives, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. Well, here's the the moment where um, I try to pronounce your name and ask for you to correct me if necessary. Okay. <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> Just pronounce it in English, man. It's not. I'm not. It's it's not that important. It's not that important. No, I mean, I, I through the podcast and through the the coaching and counseling work I do, I talk with people all over the world. Okay. And I really like to try to learn how to pronounce people's names um, with the you know with their native inflection. Okay. So let me let me try this one out. Rune Jarno Rasmussen. Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that sounded a little bit Icelandic, but uh, that's cool. You know, cool. Go with Icelandic. In Danish, it would be Rune. So the R is uh, pronounced like in in uh, in German. Uh, the Danish R is like in German or French. So it's like like Rote Reichskanzler. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah and Rune. and uh yeah the h is is uh unpronounced so it's yanu uh, yanu yeah yeah that's good that's good in rasmussen rasmussen yes yeah, rasmussen. that's good, that's good. <laughs> okay <laughs> impressive hey thanks <laughs> well i'm a musician so i have pretty good ears and yeah. uh i like I'll... to do impressions so it helps Danish is pretty messed up when it comes to try, uh, pronunciation. It's 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 just the Danish language just went down weird roads when it comes to sounds. So, <laughs> yeah. Huh. Well, maybe we can talk about that because I'm sure it has something to do with uh, the mix of uh, who, like the kind of ethnic makeup of of Denmark, right? Um, I'm not sure. You know, I, I actually I doubt it's going to be particularly relevant to an animist an animism discussion because I don't think that there are animism related reasons for it. It's more something with proximity to other European languages that you know, for instance, have the that that R sound rather than the the Spanish sounding rolling R that you that you find in in other parts of Scandinavia. So hmm. um, yeah, I don't know. But if you if you want to, you know, we can talk about it. <laughs> no that's cool um so for people who don't know uh you have a platform called nordic animism and yeah let me just explain how i found you um so i interviewed uh bio Komalafe a little while ago and i was just doing my research looking for different interviews that he'd done and 
I found your interview with him. And I think it was the first interview where his uh, his views really started to click with me. Like I started to understand where he was coming from. Uh, and so I really appreciated the way that you guided that interview. It really helped me to to understand his ideas a little better. Oh, I'm really happy to hear that. It, it was also, it was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful interview. By the way, I I have a really good vibe with bio. So, uh, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, and I subsequently did an interview with him and had the same kind of experience. I just really enjoyed talking with him and playing with ideas. He's got a lot of the trickster energy that I appreciate. Um, as do you, I think, which maybe uh, accounts for the affinity that we might all have with each other. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and so you were going to say something when I mentioned the Nordic Animism platform. Uh, was I going to say something about it? Um, it's there. It's called the Nordic Animism platform, <laughs> and you can find it on social media and stuff like that. I forgot what's, what I was about to say. So. Uh, okay. Yeah, you've got uh, a YouTube channel where you've got a lot of videos about Nordic animism and and other things like related things as well. And uh, I, I really like your how your personality comes across. Uh, you're not a typical scholar. You have a sense of humor and uh, playfulness that I appreciate. <laughs> not a typical scholar. You have a sense of humor. Yeah, I like <laughs> I like how you 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 put it. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, a lot of this stuff can get very dry and animism to me is anything but dry. Totally, totally. Actually, uh, Graham Harvey, this uh, uh, great British scholar who uh, has been talking about this, uh, or been talking about animism, he wrote uh, this animist manifesto. And it's, it's actually, it's, it's humoristic. You know, it ends up with a, with a statement that, you know, animism is not particularly well suited to be communicated in manifestos. And you should, you know, sing soulful songs and tell trickster tales instead. That's kind of part of the manifesto. So there's a, I think, I think that, that, you know, at least trying to find a humorous note is actually very seriously important uh, in order to make sense from from an animist perspective mm. that reminds me of uh, a paper i came across fairly recently from an anthropologist and uh the title of it was something like do we take animism too seriously and uh, he had done some field work with i think i think they were sami shaman and he was or mongolian shaman but he was talking about how they um they they kind of played tricks on the gods or they would they would curse the gods when things didn't go well and they had a real they would make jokes about and and to the the gods that they were worshiping and uh and, you know doing rituals for which was so great i think i know the paper it might have been rane villaslu who's actually uh from uh copenhagen too studying uh, the chukchi or the yuka gear i'm not sure which one in siberia Oh, okay. It was about mm -hmm. it was about a uh, a bear hunt, wasn't it? Yes. Where the, the the spirit of the bear is dangerous somehow, but then the whole the whole relating to it turns humoristic at some point. Um, but that's that's pretty much what I remember uh, from that part. Yeah, that's great. And uh, for people listening, if you're interested, I'll, I'll put a link to the, that paper in the description. It's a, it's really good and offers a different perspective, I think, than uh, we normally get through um anthropological reports again lack of humor and i think the animistic cultures have a lot of humor it's a it's a big part of it before we get into the specifics of that um when we talk about uh, nordic animism what areas does that encompass what geographic areas well like the term nordic is is one that i have uh, I, I have been actually a little bit insecure about choosing a term because when you when you are choosing, say, you're choosing a data field, for instance, as a scholar, then you could always have, have, have chosen it in different ways and there would have been other advantages in doing it in other ways. It could have been delimited in other ways. Like, I think about the Nordic area as... Uh, a kind of a fluffy area kind of centered around Scandinavia and Northern Europe, but 
I would actually have liked to include part of the part, perhaps all of the British Isles in that, because I think it is a, um, a similar kind of landscape and similar kind of animism, therefore, because it's relating to the same landscapes. When you look at, say, English folklore, you find a very rich animist tradition that uh, in many ways looks very Nordic or perhaps Nordic looks very English uh, and um, uh, so so I, and 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 we can't really hear that in the word Nordic that I would kind of like it to have included mm. also the west side uh, because it sounds very much like Denmark, Nor Norway, Sweden and Finland and Iceland right um, so so yeah there's a bit of a there's a bit of a backdrop to choosing such a, such a term, but um, but it also has the the advantage, the word Nordic, that uh, people tend to know what it means. If you say Nordic, then yeah, you 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 kind of you kind of know that you're in Northwestern Europe somehow, uh, and uh, and it's like part of the point of animism is also to create. It is to create connectivity, right? Which is part of the reason that you need to choose words and language that people understand. And sometimes you have to choose words and language that people understand over words and language that might have a slightly higher degree of precision, which would be the, the typical scholarly choice. And like paradoxically, the a lot of the 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 anthropology that looks at relational worldviews and this, for instance, what is called the ontological turn or the Cambridge school, like it's all about relation and being in relation, and <laughs> but it is probably like the most unrelational language that I have ever encountered. It's very, very difficult to understand what's being said, uh, mm. which means that you know, it, it, it doesn't it doesn't reach out in the world. And it's, perhaps it's also not the objective of that language to create relation. But but yeah, so so different things could be said for and against the 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 Nordic delimita delimitation. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, but I think it works reasonably well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also a little bit it also has a bit of an, uh, you could say, a question mark around it in relation to uh, diaspora uh, Euro-descended people, for instance, in North America or other parts of the world, uh, because how do they identify with that? And I think when you talk about traditional knowledge, it's really important that it doesn't become uh, seclusive and far the, the, the greater majority of, of humans today, and particularly of the people that are racialized as white, uh, are in diaspora. We don't, many, most of us don't live in the same area as our great grandparents. And it's important that, that, that these concepts are available also for these people to understand themselves and to, uh, to engage uh, perhaps the landscapes that they're living in. Mm. Yeah, and to help reclaim some of their ancestry. Like, I, I mean, I'm a third generation Canadian, and the area that you describe uh, as encompassing your kind of field of study is like the map of my 23andMe DNA uh, map. I mean, it's all uh, Northwestern European, Scandinavia, but over in uh, Britain and Ireland as well. So it's really hard for me to uh, choose an identity in terms of ancestry, uh, you know, and, and Nordic animism is a little catchier than uh, Northern European animism, you know, which is maybe a bit broader. Uh, but there's also that thing too about animism, um, maybe not being compatible with geographic boundaries, right? Like um, the oak tree doesn't, doesn't care about those boundaries. Right. And so the oak trees on the British Isles would be as revered as the oak trees in, let's say, Scandinavia or Germany. Right. Possibly. Pos like sometimes, yes. Uh, you certainly find that animisms do not follow 
for instance, nation state lines. I mean, totally, certainly not. Uh, you're going to find the same, you, you're going to find traditions diffusing over uh, nation lines. They're also going to be shared across uh, fairly deep cultural lines. So uh, if you have Swedish agrarian people and Sami uh, pastoralists uh, living in the same forest area, you're going to find that they will be sharing animist uh, ideas about relating to that landscape. Um, so, so, uh, so, anim I think one of the main points of animism is that it is, in a sense, or that the landscape part of what it is is very important. There might be a cultural heritage that you know some people are giving to their uh, children and so on. Of course, there is, uh, but I, I sometimes think that that aspect of a cultural heritage is overemphasized. For instance, some uh, like to, to think about an Indo-European heritage, which then becomes, and, and like the advantage of thinking like that is that then you are uh, expanding, you, you're expanding the material that you can think with. If, if you have suddenly included the entire of the Indo-European uh, uh, language groups, then you have Hittite and Luvian and uh, Farsi, Saratustrian, Hindu, Sanskrit, Vedic. You have, you have a huge package of material that you can that you can work with and work from, which is, I guess, useful. Um, but it 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 has the um, the disadvantage, I think, that it it hones in on a tradition as something that is inside our culture, inside our heritage, more than something that emerges in, uh, in, in our meeting with the, land, with the specific landscapes. Uh, so, so I think it's important to, to have this outwards, uh, concrete um, uh, view of what animism is. Hmm. So more um, specific to place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Uh, how did you, um, well, actually the other thing before we move away from that, why animism and not uh, paganism? Um, because um, paganism, like in the North, Nordic context, paganism is most often called heathendom or heathenry or heathenism. And it's, it is a very specific cultural complex that you can study it historically. When you study it historically, you are faced with some very difficult source material. You need very sharp and, and, and kind of awake source criticism when you are engaging this material and you are speaking about an, an, a, a, an enclosed context that is very far away. Um, I always felt that there was some sort of a... Uh, there was a, it's almost as if there, there was a bit of a backdrop to the, in a European context, comparatively high quality of that material, because it, it, it means that the, there is a distancing in looking at that distant context and trying to attain, like it becomes very much an academic endeavor. If you, if you look at many, for instance, heathen uh, debates online, uh, and how uh, many uh, Nordic heathens talk about their religion, it becomes this, uh, yes, very academic uh, endeavor, sometimes practiced by people who aren't scholars themselves, so it's even kind of badly practiced academia sometimes, but but it, it becomes basically scholasticism, where people are, are talking about the theoretic validity of X proposition about what people in this very distant context might have been thinking about this or that uh, religious uh, reality. So it, it moves very far away from us. When you think animism, you open the entire cultural history for, uh, for dialogue. And you can say, well, animism is not only something that existed in in a pre-Christian context, there were elements of 
cultural resilience in which aspects of the pre-Christian spirituality was transformed into new forms in Christianity. There were perhaps aspects of Christianity that became almost animist itself. There was parts of what is sometimes called folklore or folk belief that continued existing through centuries and which are in many ways like completely detached from Christianity, but fully valid as animism. Now, if you have a Scandinavian um, cult of a home patron uh, spirit, uh, there are these sort of gnome elf-like <laughs> figures that have protected people's homes. If you have that sort of, a, uh, say, spiritual engagement, um, that cannot be labeled pre-Christian because it was only documented in the 18th and 19th century. So it cannot really be, be, be projected back in 800 years into the Iron Age, because things are in, in transformation, and particularly animist worldviews are dynamic. They are, uh, they are always in relation, and since the world changes, then they are adaptable and, and change with the times so um so that means that that back projecting folklore on for instance pre-christian paganism or heathendom is methodologically it methodologically problematic so so uh this just means that saying animism is a way of opening the ball again basically with a new uh a new feel to play on and say hey mm. that engagement with a fire spirit from 19th century norway that is a fully legitimate expression of animism forget about whether it was there 800 years earlier or not it may have been it probably was but strictly speaking who can how can we tell it's animism you know mm. uh, and and that uh, so in that way, I've I've found animism to be a, 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 a it, it's 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 I think it's a stronger way of engaging a larger part of of history than than uh, uh, thinking, for instance, paganism or heathen heathendom. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I guess too, like paganism and heathenism were terms that. Uh, were, were only used in like the Christian era to speak about the the non-Christians basically right um and animism Maybe, yes. so yeah animism I guess seems like it's a broad, broader designation uh now yeah uh, animism has its own problematic history well, but but yeah let's right let's it's still there. a term for like the, those others that are being studied from an yeah. anthropological context right yeah yeah. yeah, that's the thing that um, is always a kind of struggle. Like, how do you name your worldview without using these terms? Because an animist would never, uh, like a traditional animist, would never call themselves an animist. It would be just, that's the way things are. It's not a belief yeah. system. It's a matter of fact that fire has a spirit and we can communicate with that spirit and engage with it. So it's always a bit totally. of a problem for us moderns, right? Yeah. Totally. And often the, those traditional knowledge systems might just be called that tradition and that's it, or custom and that's it. You know, mm -hmm. um, typically uh, focusing a little bit like the word custom, focusing on uh, the, that it's something that we just do. And in many cases, anthropologists who have been interviewing animists in different places in the world uh, would have been told and asked so how do you why do you do this or that they would just say well because that's what we've always done mm -hmm. and i think part of the reason behind this way of of uh, formulating animism is to actually focus away from the talking about and focus on the actual engagement the doing um as which can, like in and, and these these can sometimes clinch like i have um become familiar with the afro diasporic religions particularly in in brazil um and 
and in those religions they're very uh they're very clear about not talking too much like talking too much is something you shouldn't do asking about stuff why do you do this or that it's not a good idea the best thing is just to do it and and learn the practice and the the sort of the nitty-gritty what do you call it in english nuts and bolts of how to uh how to make uh make that this kind of spirituality role rather than to think a lot about it or talk a lot about it mm -hmm. yeah very similar to uh the yogic tradition too where you know i'd ask my teacher well why do we do this in a particular way well that's what my teacher taught me yeah and that's what i'm passing on to you and then it's up to you to okay accept it give it a try and um have the experience yourself rather yeah. than discuss for days about the why exactly the why becomes exactly. apparent in the in the doing of it yeah or it can be that why can be polyvalent it can hold contradictions in it uh and it holds those contradictions better if you don't articulate it too much Hmm. Well, contradictions, but also just uh, maybe um, multiple or paradoxes, multiples yes. that maybe yeah. maybe don't even contradict with each other, but coexist. Yeah, in a, in a kind of more complex entanglement. Yeah, um, yeah I wanted to ask you about your uh, encounter with the Afro-Brazilian traditions, and so maybe it's part of this question, but I wanted to know like how you got into the study of animism. Um, yeah, that, I think I started focusing on sort of the academic animist, uh, thinking actually when I was doing my PhD on Afro-Brazilian, uh, tradition, and I was looking for ways, ways of engaging that stuff that were as, um, uh, what is it, what is it, as horizontal as possible as as res like respectful of that reality as 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 absolutely possible and uh these animist thinkers was the was basically the best i found where you where i felt that with that academic position that enabled me to come to these priestesses and and my my actual academic investigation became me learning from them there I, I was actually learning their reality and that was what i was learning from rather than me mapping their reality and then walking out of it and saying something about it that that they would have just thought what the fuck is he talking about you know which is you know often the, the case that that scholarship works like that um and so so i i found that's how i got on the path of these particular ways of of thinking in the in the scholarship uh, yeah but what what led you to i mean uh, a guy from denmark gets how do you get interested in these afro brazilian cults yeah you know, what's that yeah, introduction yeah you know it's perhaps it's you know almost like a bit accidental through your studies I started studying Nordic uh, religion, but got a little bit uh, disillusioned because of that whole source criticism data problematic uh, situation that I described to you before. So I was a bit like, man, I'm not going to spend my study years studying, uh, you know, faulty uh, but over biased reflections of by christian writers of a worldview that disappeared 200 years before they started writing it down uh, uh, if i want to understand spiritual knowledge then i need to go and talk to people who are actually practicing it now so and that that was my motivation to think okay so uh, and initially i just had the impression that these particular kinds of religion uh were um uh, very vibrant in our our time today fairly accessible you don't have to learn extremely difficult languages to talk to these people 
Spanish will do. You know, you can actually, uh, you know, just go down there and start. After some a couple of months, you you you'll get along. Um, and they look actually actually these kind of religions look very similar to European uh, European polytheisms or animisms. So so there was sort of that kind of considerations that were there. Um, then there's also the perhaps random fact that there that there's been uh, at least one important anthropologist in, in Denmark who has actually gone and studied uh, Candomblé as the Afro-Brazilian thing is called. And I read her book. Uh, and at the time, I think I was focusing on, uh, I was focusing on uh, reading uh, the, the Jewish tradition. And uh, I remember waking up, literally sleeping with my head on the on the divorce uh, uh, legislation of the Talmud, like this. Uh, it, I, I I I I just wasn't wasn't cut out of that. So I thought, fuck it, I'm I gonna. A I need a party. <laughs> yeah, that more or less, more or less. You know, I was in my early mid twenties. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna start training capoeira. I'm gonna go to Brazil. <laughs> I'm gonna start studying voodoo. <laughs> so so uh, so that's what I did. I started training capoeira uh, and did capoeira quite intensively for quite some years. And that was also part of me going to Brazil because if you do capoeira Brazilian uh dance fighting then you uh then you're already uh you already know people there so so you 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 don't just land with your backpack and say okay so where is the inca trail you, you land in a green in a group with mm -hmm. the people that already live there and so on so so that was how i kind of got got into that and i then think that part of what i got out of it or what I learned from it was ways of thinking about how to basically make what you could almost call animist safe spaces in modernity. Uh, I, I think that what these people do and the reason that, that uh, as I said to Bio, that his people, the Yoruba, will be remembered on the same level as the Greeks and, and, and the Romans and Mesopotamians, is that they built a culture of resilience to modernity that is extremely effective. You walk into these houses, these uh, where they practice this, uh, this uh, religion, and they have a very powerful presence of, of uh, like possession, for instance, can happens with, with such an immediacy and such a such a power in those spaces. And that is well, that's a result of many different things in the way that they build their their practice, but it is partly a result of how they build that whole space almost as a as a, as a kind of a ontological bubble in modernity where where reality itself just operate by different rules and those distinction between us as humans and other than humans are uh, much more permissible than they are in in most contexts in a, in a western urban society that's for sure yeah i think that's so fascinating so when you started engaging in capoeira you were already thinking like this is a preparation to do the field work in Brazil. Is that right? Or no, it was more like I was interested in capoeira and I also thought that the religious the religious space was was interested, was interesting. So I was kind of I did my bachelor's degree about candomblé, writing about candomblé. Uh and that was a little thing. And at that point I had lived uh, I think six months in in brazil um the danish education system at the time was rather open you could you could just say okay you didn't even have to tell them you could just leave and then come back you know a couple of years later and say you know i'd like to take some exams and then do that oh. and uh for me that meant that during my ma education i i took quite a long time to do it but during that time, I, 
at, at one point I just left university without telling anybody I was gone for two years, uh, worked in Sudan, Angola, and uh, I went to Brazil. I went two times. I went two times to Uganda and two times to Brazil as part of my my education because it was kind of loose at that time the Danish system. So uh, and that for me personally that was very useful because uh, because I, I could I could use that to just go get out whenever you know it started <laughs> it started being too much too much uh, Talmud. Uh, divorce legislation going on. <laughs> oh, it's really fascinating. My my introduction to um, the Afro-Brazilian religions was through a cult called the Santo Daime. It has a, yes. a, a large element of uh, Umbanda kind of embedded in it. It depends on what lineage you're in, but the one that uh, I was practicing in had, had that quite strongly. And uh, I went to a ceremony on February 2nd, which is the day of uh, one of the days of Ye Maja. Yeah. And I had this like incredible experience. And uh, I, I love that space that you're talking about, the Tereyu, where it's you enter into an alternate reality where the divisions between human and not merely human are way more porous and open. And you know, being on the west coast of Canada, the only place I could find that was uh, had a had a bit of that was uh, in the capoeira hoda. Mm. And I saw, you know, I'd go to a capoeira class, and uh, they they wouldn't really talk about the spirituality too much. They would talk about ashe just being kind of uh, a, a life force that we we're generating through this practice. But I saw in the white clothes in the in the circular form in the music i saw all these resonances with uh umbanda um, and it was never talked about explicitly because it was mostly um, people of european descent teaching these classes and and i guess for them the spirituality wasn't a big part of it but for me it was the closest i could get to that kind of space uh so i kind yeah. of went in a little bit backwards from your entry into it yeah. Oh, that's that's super cool. Yeah, I I'm, I, uh, I I was I was kind of a capoeira born again for about ten years. I was totally into it. <laughs> I was totally into it, uh, and I actually did my MA about uh, traditional knowledge forms in capoeira uh, because I think that there are some uh, there are some really uh, really deep things going on actually in capoeira and they are today they are it's very difficult to see them you know they they uh there's a lot of uh or at least oh, i haven't been in capoeira for some time now but my how i remember capoeira was that there was a lot of talk uh and a lot of but uh, about it or, or kind of away from it almost but the actual culture of what they call the manjinga is almost it almost seems forgotten like you need to you need to go to salvador and you need to speak some of the real old timers mm -hmm. uh, and then you then you can kind of you can get bits and pieces of it but but uh, and i was like i i wanted to sort of try to basically describe a little bit of this to 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 just make it available to uh, con contemporary people basically or contemporary practitioners hmm. i think it speaks to like how uh those you know the echoes of the yoruban tradition can be found in different styles of capoeira uh it speaks to the resiliency that you're talking about of uh this particular I don't know if, if we call it a religion um, has so many kind of variants and, but par part of that is it's adaptability is what makes it resilient. Right. So, I mean, what is it about this particular tradition that uh, allows for so much adaptability and still retain the ashe, the, the kind of original uh, vivifying spirit of it? Mm -hmm. Have you been able to get a sense of that? Like what makes it possible yeah. for this? Yeah. Um, I might not have a very strong answer, but my suggestion is that, uh, and um, 
I'm following a, an American scholar on this suggestion that if you look at Yoruba land in West Africa, then what you really have is a lot of intersecting city-states almost, where there's little royal houses that dominate a specific area and they're kind of sometimes they're a bit in conflict with each other and there's there's been a lot of war going back through history and so on and what you sometimes find is competing mythologies so inside like yoruba traditional religion is not like one package and it's just like that but and there are different mythologies and they they flow into each other and different deities will sometimes adopt aspects of each other so if there is a a story that 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 tells that uh that uh Obatala, the creator deity uh kind of wired himself down of a a golden chain and created the world uh then uh, and they're telling that story perhaps in ile ife in in yoruba land then perhaps if you go to uh oyo then perhaps they're telling the same story about shango their main deity i'm not sure if they do exactly that but this principle sometimes works like that so this means that uh, sometimes in Yoruba land, you have, for instance, a compound of people uh, who are living in a, in a space, an ile, uh, where uh, there's a group of people living. And in that you know, extended family, they might have their own mythology. Uh, they might be telling you that, well, it's actually Ogun, the, the god of iron, who is really the creator god. And uh and so on and so forth but perhaps they're living in oyo where the king is saying that it's shango who is the creator god so they're actually alternative mythologies that are coexisting in the same space and this is also connected to power and that whole web of interrelation and power and struggle and sometimes contradiction that needs to be resolved where people perhaps inside a compound will say well it's actually our mythology that's the best one and uh, and so on that me that that has perhaps contributed to the capacity of yoruba descendants in the americas to be able to um uh intersect with very oppressive power knowledge power that they uh, that they uh, encounter there and so that's one aspect another aspect is their trickster thinking mm-hmm. that i i spoke with bio about that they have this very beautiful and powerful uh trickster mythology which uh where the trickster is a very, very important foundational function in everything, and nothing would move, nothing would be mobile or transformational or dynamic if it didn't have the trickster, if reality didn't have the trickster. And that enables them to also to twist meanings. So they, you see that the identifications between the, their gods and the saints they sometimes twist the meanings quite a lot so if shango is mostly identified as a young virile powerful man who is uh, filled with fire and intensity then perhaps he will be identified with saint jerome i think would be in in english who is an old man uh, sitting and reading a book it's almost an inversion there right or a sharp change. Saint Sebastian, who is a, a naked, effeminate man pierced by arrows, that was his martyrdom, would perhaps be identified with Oshasi, the hunter who's shooting a bow. Again, there's a. So, so there are these trickster things going on in their way of relating to the power languages that they encounter. Uh, and you also see that on other levels. You see it in how they relate to modern uh, language. You see how in how they they uh, cope with and deal with and create resilience towards uh, racism. And uh, so, uh, so they have this, like these particular people just had this amazing 
capacity in their culture to create uh, create uh, thinking that is simultaneously very traditional. It is as if it stays so true to its traditional uh, to its traditional form or to its traditional context, while it's very very transformational and incredible. It has an incredible capacity to include. Like if if you look at stuff like Candomblé, uh, it has significant or the whole Candomblé, for instance, Umbanda that you mentioned, has com- significant components from Europe. Uh, European spiritism played a major role in in these particular uh, uh, religions, and that was basically because that was well aligned with them. So. Yeah why not use it you know yeah alan kardec comes from europe and uh they're doing mediumship they go oh we've got mediumship too great yeah yeah (laughs) yeah and it's it's also i think the whole spiritism like that idea of dead people and i i I just think that just went click between uh, west africans and central africans and europeans they 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 just they're just very aligned these different kinds of people so that just went brrr. so if you go to to france where alan kardec you know uh supposedly came from you're not going to find any kardecianism there you're not going to find any spiritism of very little but in in cuba brazil haiti even nigeria it's world religion uh so so there's there's this very strong thing that happened there so it's it's it attests how connective these uh these kinds of being religious are Hmm. Uh, i think that's a really fascinating point to contemplate that um having a trickster deity like issue central to you know your pantheon allows for all of the contradictions and conflicts they're an expression of that deity of that force um and so it's able to be accepted uh i mean it's it's fascinating so like nordic animism would have a trickster deity as well right whether that's um i guess loki or maybe raven right so why wouldn't it have the same resiliency and ability to syncretize with uh the christianity that came in and you know what i mean there might be many many explanations for that there might be many explanations for that um maybe it was being so close to the the military force of the the catholic church and so like the forced conversion uh was maybe more possible in northern europe than it would have been in the african diaspora well I think one factor is time. Um, if you think about the time that uh, that um, uh, Yoruba were enslaved and uh, abducted to the Americas, then that is perhaps uh, 150 years ago, 170, something like that, perhaps at the latest. Uh, less than 200 at least if we think of the time that uh, Scandinavia were Christianized uh, perhaps roughly around the year 1000 and then we think 200 years down the line from that then we have the 1200s is that the time of Richard the Lionheart or something like that it's very 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 long time ago (laughs) you know so so christianity has been here and 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 been linked with power for much 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 longer um there might also be something about the um the uh, ways that christianity was implemented i'm not sure uh i think that uh, there, that this the whole racism structure sort of created. It also created a little bit of a separation, where where I think white people in some cases 
probably didn't care that much what these people were doing in the slave barracks. So racism has played some sort of a role as well, where <clears throat> if you were uh, white English in the 15th, 16th century, and you were practicing something pagan, you know, that would receive an incredible amount of social attention and it would not be sanctioned. It would be, you know, there would be uh, cultural consequences implemented on that. Hmm. So, and like, if you could compare to Scandinavia, you see that the Sami, there has been a bit of that sort of race, racial, racialized um, marginalization of the Sami. And they continue to be uh, to have almost heathen practices much, much, much further down in time because there was that sort of uh, denigration of them as inferior peoples of some sort. So, mm. so, so there, there might be different factors in this. Um, but I actually think that when you look at Scandinavian uh, early history, you see some similar patterns of resilience emerging you see saints emerging that look remarkably like Nordic deities. Um, you see patterns of Christian behavior that uh, look remarkably like uh, heathen practices emerging. Uh, and like in some cases, uh, <clears throat> Christian, uh, the implementation of Christianity basically went well, let's continue practicing this or that. Let's just call it something Christian, you know. So, uh, so there's there, there has been a uh, a attention. There has been a struggle, and some uh, heathen practices uh, continued surprisingly, uh, or has had a surprising resilience. So you see, you know. A man in Norway uh, in a farm would go out and, and, and slaughter a cow on a burial mound outside the farm when the, his father dies, some kind of a sacrifice. At, at, at the turning of the 20th century, close to the between the 19th and the 20th century, it is a remarkably heathen thing to do, but uh it's kind of just continue to be there sometimes you know uh so so yeah i think there are different factors that that define that hmm. yeah i was thinking about it too it's like one of the the aspects of the trickster is to hide kind of hide in plain sight um to to, to trick uh, and, you know, when we look at something like uh, capoeira, it's kind of um, a, a ritual hidden in plain sight. You could be on the streets performing this ritual and it would look like martial arts or a dance. Um, that seems to be an important aspect of it, too. But I think, yeah, it, it makes sense to me what you're saying about the, the racism, uh, that separation. Like, as long as they seem to be paying lip service to our um our christian god or our saints well okay good enough you know they're they're other and so we can't expect them to be fully christian so mm. yeah i mm. hadn't thought about that angle but um you know talking about this timeline of the christianization of scandinavia uh you know i think one of the things that um you know if we haven't really studied it there's a sense that it uh, it was like a moment in time, you know. It was like before eight eight hundred pagan, after eight hundred Christian. But uh, this was a process that took quite some time, right? Do you have Do you have any sense of like how long it took for the animus practices that were native to that place to be uh, kind of usurped by Christian practices? Oh, that's a difficult question because. Um... Some practices are still there, right? Like you were saying, it's still yeah. it was never complete. 
yeah. Uh, mm. And uh, and if you go back like just a little bit in time, so much more. And a lot of the animist practices in the, in the folklore were considered in the time itself very very heathen like if you went back say 150 years and uh, people would be giving beer and porridge to to elves uh, in in a mound you can be sure that the local pastor uh he wouldn't have had a trouble ha had a problem naming that a heathen thing he would definitely there, there would have been strong condemnation uh so and, and in some cases, uh, the cultural resilience that I spoke about before has also, you know, continuously been there. Uh, I read about May Day rituals, where in some cases, May Day rituals could be very transgressive and um, people would have uh, ritual sex, for instance. Uh, so from a Christian perspective, that was unacceptable and um and if you have this kind of a may ritual where people are have a wild party they're dancing around fire and there's strange ritual proclamations of couples who then run out to have ritual sex on ancient rock carvings and these kind of things then uh and the pastor uh, would then say no this was this is banned now you can't do it then the next morning he finds a maypole standing outside his church door and these kind of things and there has been this sort of uh tension uh down through the ages so so i mean it's rather difficult for me to put a, a date on it like that um it is an important step when the power structure shifts onto Christianity. And that happens in the Middle Ages. Hmm. Uh, that uh, the European feudal infrastructure of power where uh, kind of dynastic marriages and that whole sort of Game of Thrones reality that we, <laughs> that, or the, that reality that we know from Game of Thrones, that kind of feudal um, system when the when the greater part of the European context had switched onto Christianity, then the the top social layers in Scandinavia kind of had to shift onto Christianity as well because they they were unable to create all these dynastic feudal alliances and marry their daughters off to F Frankish princes and all that kind of thing. So. So the shift to Christianity was, uh, it didn't come as like a colonization in the same way as we know in from history of colonization in say North America or something like that, where you have a foreign power that kind of lands on you and say, okay, so now you have to be Christian. But it did, it, it did flow through power. So it, it was elites who converted to Christianity in order to be able to stay elites or be elites or play their elite games and create empires and and all these uh, things that which was ideas that scandinavians totally had in in the middle ages the uh, some of the uh, danish king and kings in the viking age they tried sometimes successfully to create huge empires there was at one point in history where the entire north sea region was actually collected gathered under Canute uh, the Great uh, for a short while. Uh, so so that was their aspirations. You couldn't do that if you weren't Christian at the time. So uh, yeah, so that was those those that shift, roy royals, kings becoming Christian. That was an important shift, but that didn't mean that people in the villages didn't continue doing a lot of other stuff hmm. one of the things that i guess i'm interested with you personally uh is how your engagement in the afro-brazilian traditions i did that have the effect of opening you up to something from your own ancestral traditions 
like to to have that experience of it um you know being being involved in a living tradition uh was that a doorway into opening you up to exploring nordic animism yes it was uh there was um was experiences that came as a direct result of of engaging some of that stuff um and again it's important to note that these these kinds of traditions that i became familiar with in brazil and uh, whose knowledge keepers i was so lucky that they shared knowledge with me this was an excerpt of a longer conversation if you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness thanks thanks